Alrighty. Doesn't matter if you're a little kid uh, trying to withstand the temptation of a, an instant sugar hit for something that might be better coming later, or if you're one of the believers trying to stand against um, temptation in the spiritual realm. All of us struggle with temptation. Satan knows that. Jesus knows that. And so he has asked us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in this last part of the prayer, Jesus really turns our attention to that spiritual battle that all of us as Christians must face. It is part and parcel of life for us. And for many believers, this part of the prayer presents something of a theological challenge. Is temptation something that God would really lead us into? Does he lead us into situations where we can be tempted? If this verse is a challenge to you and to what you believe about God, then you're in very good company. It was probably for this very reason that in 2017, Pope Francis faced the wrath of traditionalists to try and have this line of the Lord's Prayer changed in the Italian language uh, to read, do not let us fall into temptation. It makes a lot better understanding for us uh, in our understanding of, of God and who he is. But of course, you do start to stray into dangerous territory when um, you start to replace words which are there in the original, lead, with words which aren't there in the original, uh, the word fall. But we understand where he's coming from, don't we? This is something that's very difficult for people to get right in their heads. It looks like the Bible is saying that God leads us into temptation. But yet we know from other parts of the Bible that that's just not true. And perhaps it is for this very reason that James, in his letter to the churches, uh, spent an extended time discussing this whole issue of temptation and the source of temptation in particular. In verses 2 to 4 of the first chapter of that letter, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Now notice that James's letter is addressed to believers. And the word he uses there is whenever. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say if you face trials of many kinds. It is assumed that as believers we will face trials of many kinds. And that testing will produce perseverance and that perseverance is necessary to complete a good work in us so that we may become mature as believers in Christ. James goes on to say, a little later on in the same chapter, verses 12 to 14, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Three things to take note from this small couple of verses there. Firstly, just like those little kids in the video received their reward for holding out against the temptation to eat that first marshmallow straight away, there's a reward. There was a reward for them and there will be a reward for us, for those who persevere in the face of trials and temptations. And that reward is not eternal life. The crown of life is not eternal life. That is for everyone, for all believers. This is a, a reward for those who have persevered and lived a good life under trial. James is also very clear about the source of temptation. God, he says, does not tempt anyone. And there is absolutely no ambiguity in what he's saying there. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And we have to keep that in mind when we read this part of the Lord's Prayer. Final thing I want you to note is some of the words that are used here. So all of these words that are being circled in red are from the same Greek word. One word that is translated into several English words which have some ambiguity about them. So one Greek word can mean trial, can mean test, and can mean temptation. And some poor Bible translator has to work out which one of those English words this one Greek word is meaning in every instance that it's found in the Bible. And normally that happens by looking at the context. But there's not a huge amount of context to go on in this one line that we have. So why does it matter? What is the difference between a trial or a test and a temptation? Well, the best explanation that I could find was uh, in a, an online help, an online Bible study tool, um, the Step Bible. Now that's available to everyone, it's free, you can all use it. Um, but the explanation there I thought was very helpful. The difference between a test and a temptation is found in the tester's motives and in their expectations. So the devil tempts so that the believer might fail God's standards of faith and sin. God tests so that he might determine and sharpen true character with no focus on making the believer fails. So one is motivated by evil and expects you to fail. The other is motivated by love and expects you to prove or improve your character. Now Jesus knows what it is to be tempted because he was tempted himself. And so we can only presume that he understood that on our own as flawed human beings, we were not going to have it in us to persevere under temptation. And so he's taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. And through prayer, we draw on that victory that he has already won at the cross. And we seek the Holy Spirit to be at work in, in our lives. Now, all three accounts in the Gospel of the temptation of Jesus state that it was the Spirit who led him into the desert or the wilderness, but that it was the devil who tempted him there. God allowed that test to happen, but it was the devil who did the tempting. Now, the context of that story is that Jesus has just been anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry at his baptism. And so Satan knew that his time was limited. The kingdom of God was breaking through. And Satan's power and authority in this world was about to be seriously reined in. So he throws all that he has at Jesus in this sort of last-ditch attempt to stop what's inevitably going to happen. During his 40 days in the desert, we're told that Jesus fasted. And the Gospel records state the obvious, that he was hungry because he'd eaten nothing. And so where does Satan go first? He goes first to that point of greatest vulnerability. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now Jesus knew what it would take to get through that time of temptation, a steadfast resolve to do the Father's will. And so Satan goes at him where he is most vulnerable, at that physical and emotional level of, of hunger. And he still does that today. It's a tried and true method. So when we have experienced times of extended poor health, when we've lost a job, when we have relationship struggles, when we're struggling to pay the bills, when we're grieving, or when things just don't seem to be going right in life, these are the times that Satan will seed ideas in our minds, seed despair and seed doubt. And Jesus was having none of it. He answers with scripture, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan has another go. He takes him to the highest point on the temple. Now that was said to be the southwest corner and, it, and there was a platform on the top there and it's said that from there the priests would regularly blow the horn to remind the people to come to prayer. Now there was a 15-storey drop from that point to the plaza below. It was a busy plaza full of people all the time and because of the the priests using that particular corner, this was a, an important place. And so Satan says to him, why don't you throw yourself off? And then he quotes one of the Psalms, which states that no harm would come to him. The angels would lift him up. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off. Everyone will see. What he's tempting him with is a shortcut. Bring your ministry in this way. Everyone will see you lifted up. 
It's, it's about notoriety. That wasn't God's will for the start of Jesus' mission, to come in with a bang like that. And Jesus knew it. And so he returns to the scriptures again. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Strike two for Satan. So he has another go, this time taking Jesus out to a high mountain to survey all the kingdoms of the world. All of this I will give you if you'll just bow down to me. Don't worry about the passion and the suffering and all of that hard stuff to come. All you need to do is bow down to me now and all of this can be yours. It's a shortcut. It's eliminating all the hard stuff to get to the what he thinks is the good stuff. But that was not God's will either. It's very similar to what happened in Eden. Jesus is offered a fast track to king, kingship on earth and Eve was offered a fast track to being like God. She saw it, she believed it looked good and pleasing to the eye and so she took it. But Jesus is steadfast in his will to do the Father's, to do the Father's will. Away from me, Satan, he says. And then turning to scripture, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And so it's strike three for Satan, where the first Adam had succumbed to temptation with disastrous consequences. The last Adam resisted Satan with the word of God. And he went out from that place to minister in power. So what Satan had tried to use for evil, to tempt Jesus to sin, God had used to prove that his son could not sin and to prepare him for a ministry that would see the kingdom of God constantly advancing and the kingdom of Satan constantly being pushed back. And so Jesus goes from there in power. He teaches, he heals the sick, he casts out demons and he teaches his followers to do the same. And he knows it's not going to be easy for them. He knows that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour and so he teaches them to pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And there's a beautiful scene that is detailed in the middle of the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel where the 72 that Jesus has sent out to teach, to do all the things that he's taught them to do, they come back and they're excited because of what they've seen and they say to him, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And he did. He was there at the beginning and he saw Satan cast out of heaven. And now here again, he's seeing the kingdom of darkness fall. And it's falling before them, his disciples, when they go out and they minister in his power and in his authority. And it is filling him with joy. And all of those powers of darkness, they will continue to fall 
when his disciples, you and I, even today, go out in the power and the authority of Jesus and do what he has told us to do. The battle that we are engaged in is a spiritual battle. But we have been equipped with everything that we need for that battle to stand firm. We just need to use it. There's a very small little book by Hank Hangraff and it's about prayer and intimacy with God. It's called The Prayer of Jesus. And in part of that book, he was inspired to write sort of C.S. Lewis screw tape letters style, uh, a fictional account between Satan and one of his demons, describing that particular demon's mission on earth. And this is what he writes. Your mission, he says, is to make sure that this present generation of putrid evangelicals completely loses sight of the weapons of warfare listed in their manual under the full armour. And I think he's on to something there. I think that is really all that Satan has to do to convince us not to use what God has already given us to help us stand firm and win the battle. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, a very well-known passage about that armour that God has equipped us with. We've been provided with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, for our feet the gospel of peace. We have a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation or the hope of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and we have prayer. And all Satan has to do is convince us not to use them. When we put on the full armour of God, we will win. There's no two ways about it. And when we fail to put it on or we're tempted to take it off, we will lose. And Satan knows that. It is a tried and true method. Adam and Eve let the belt of truth slip when they believed the serpent's lies. Now lies abound these days. They're all over the place. They're all over the internet. Don't fall into the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. The breastplate of righteousness, that can be heard crashing down right through the pages of the Bible. For Solomon it was pride. For Judas, it was a bag of silver coins. For those brothers of Joseph, it was envy. Gideon's shield of faith can be seen wobbling when he looks around him at all the trouble that Israel is experiencing at the hands of their enemies. Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, momentarily dropped his shield and he would go on to drop it again when he would deny Jesus after his arrest. Even the great Charles Spurgeon at times doubted his salvation and struggled daily to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And more than a few high-profile church leaders have fallen from grace because they failed to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God or because they failed to stand firm 
on the foundation of the gospel of peace. They didn't put on their appropriate footwear. And even when repeatedly reminded by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples still failed to cover themselves in prayer. All that Satan has to do is to tempt us not to use the armour, to loosen that belt of truth, to lower the shield of faith, or to put down the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, even just for a little while. And he's going to go first for that area of our life where we are most vulnerable. And that will be the area of your life that has not been fully yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit. That's where we are most vulnerable. It's a battle for control. Who ultimately reigns in that area of my life? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it still the old self? holding on to power. Galatians 5, 16 to 17 says, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. Now sometimes when we fall to temptation, it is spectacular. It's obvious. Everybody can see it. There's a, a major incident that's happened. There's perhaps a falling away from the faith after that, and everybody knows it. But that's probably a relatively small percentage of the instances. More likely, it is a slow chipping away that people don't notice. I think many of you will recognise this scene from the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, remember the character Andy Dupree who was falsely accused and imprisoned and he spent the next 20 years chipping away at the rock of his prison wall with a little gemstone rock cutter behind a, a big poster of Rita Hayworth and then Raquel Welsh when he upgraded his posters. 20 years of quiet chipping away and behind that poster was a tunnel big enough for a man to crawl through. Now for all intents and purposes to any prison guard who walked past his cell, it was nothing but an ordinary prison cell. And isn't that just how we like to present to one another? On the outside, nothing to see here just an ordinary Christian. But if you pull down the front, often what you'll find is a gaping hole where Satan has been chip, chip, chipping away at what lies beneath. You see, really all Satan has to do is to get us to believe a few little lies. And two of his favourites are, I could never, and it doesn't matter. I could never be good enough for God. That's an old favourite, and of course, on our own, we're not. There's usually an element of truth in, in what he says. But he leaves out the rest, that we're not supposed to be good enough on our own. We never can be good enough on our own. Only through Jesus in us will we ever be more than good enough. 
but the lie starts chipping away, chip, 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 and eventually that helmet of salvation starts to slip, the helmet of the hope of salvation. I could never overcome this bad habit or that bad habit. You know, it's been part of my life for such a long time. I could never overcome it. And of course you couldn't on your own, but you've entered into a holy partnership. But Satan wants you to think that you have to do it on your own because you'll fail. And when you fail, chip, 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 he digs a little deeper and the hole gets bigger and bigger and that breastplate of righteousness starts to slip down. What about this one? Oh, pastor, I could never teach Sunday school, sing out the front, go on a mission trip, preach, teach English language to migrants, serve in our Sunday school. I could never do that. Well, maybe not in your own strength, but you've entered into a holy partnership and you've been gifted gifts for the building up of the body of the church. Don't allow Satan to fill your head with lies that you could never do that. What about this one? It doesn't matter if I claim a few more hundred dollars on my income tax for expenses than maybe I actually incurred. Nobody ever checks unless it's over a certain amount anyway. Chip, chip, chip. Whatever happened to do not steal and obey those in authority over you? The belt of truth gets a little bit looser and then it starts to slip. It doesn't matter if I don't read my Bible regularly. I already know what's in it. Well, then you've muted God's primary means of speaking to his people. And that gives Satan a bit more of a foothold if you're not listening because you're not reading his word. Chip, chip, chip. The hole starts to get bigger. It doesn't matter if I'm always running late for church or if I only make it one in three times. Doesn't matter. No one's going to notice. Well, it matters because we're told to bring our best to God, not to serve him up what's left over afterwards. And it matters because of the chip, chip, chip. After a while, one in two or three becomes one in four or six. And pretty soon, bits of your armour are dropping away. Jesus knew that this was not going to be easy. He knows the enemy, and the enemy knows us. Jesus knows that it would be a daily struggle for us to keep our armour in place and to use it to his, its full potential. And he knows that each of us will have a different area in our lives in which we will be particularly vulnerable and will struggle. And so he has taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, when our two youngest children joined our family, life became pretty chaotic. Travelling with five kids 
through airports and things, it's a bit of a nightmare. And to have to go back and return to lugging porticots and prams and baby seats and all that sort of stuff, and trying to keep five kids in the right place at the right time, when two of them are escape artists who, once you put them on the ground, they just take off in different directions, it wasn't easy. And my solution to this was to, much to the embarrassment of the three older children, was to ensure that at least one of the younger ones was on a leash. <laughs> because I knew when they were on a leash, they were close to me and I could be sure that they wouldn't wander off and that they would stay out of trouble. Now, I know people have all sorts of different views about putting kids on leashes, but for me, at times, it was an essential thing to do. And in many ways, that's what we're asking the Father to do when we pray this prayer, or this part of the prayer. We're saying, keep me close. Don't let me be tempted or tested outside of your will. And when hardships come or testing comes, reassure me by your presence that I have your protection that everything that you've provided for me, all of this armour, will not fail me and that I do not walk this path alone. Stay with me. Keep me from wandering into danger alone. Now, my kids from time to time have reminded me that I'm actually a bit of an expert at losing children. It's happened on more than one occasion. And I have a lot of experience at losing children in crowded places. And when you actually count up all the times that I've done that, it's surprising that they've all lived to tell the tale, but they have. With my firstborn, I was pretty naive. And I assumed that when the second one came along and he got bumped out of the pram, he would just stay there near me when we were out shopping. But he didn't. And one day I turned around in Rebel Sport in Greensboro Shopping Centre and he was nowhere to be seen. And so for the next 20 minutes, every single shop assistant in Rebel Sport, except for the one on the, the front counter, was searching for my son. And so were all of the security guards from that shopping centre. And just as I reached the point of sort of being completely distraught, somebody tapped on my shoulder. And it was an older woman who was one of the sales assistants there. And she said, come, I think I found him. And so I followed her over to the changing rooms and she said, look under that door. Is that him? And I looked under the door and there in the fetal position in the corner was my son. And once I sort of convinced him to get up and try and unlatch the door and get out of there, I turned to thank her and I said to her, how, how did you know? And she said, oh, it's happened before. <laughs> when they don't know what to do and they can't find mum, they just go and cry in the change rooms. <laughs> well, I got wiser from that experience. No child of mine was not going to be equipped to know what to do when they got lost. My next experience of losing children was at the Melbourne show. I don't know what possessed me, but I took a toddler, two early primary school kids, and two of their friends as well to the show. So I had five. And I lost all of them except a toddler. 
Now, losing a kid at the show is like, where do you even go to find them? Where's the information desk? Nobody knows. And so the panic in me was just rising as I rushed down this aisle and that aisle trying to find the missing kids. Not only had I lost my kids, I'd lost somebody else's kids as well. How was I going to explain that to her? And after about 15 or 20 minutes, the realisation hit me as to what I had drilled into them when we'd arrived at the show. I'd sat them down at the entrance and I'd said, see that Ferris wheel? You can see it from anywhere in the showgrounds. If you get lost, look up, get to that Ferris wheel and I will come and find you. So as fast as it's possible to go with a stroller through that sort of crowd, I made my way to the base of the Ferris wheel. And do you know what they said when I got there? What took you so long? We've been waiting for ages. <laughs> I'd equipped them to know what to do and they'd followed the instruction and they were perfectly safe. But my proudest lost kid moment came with number five. Again, at Greensboro Shopping Centre, you'd think I would have learnt my lesson. I turn around and number five is gone. And so I start to search all the nearby shops. We'd been in the children's playground, and so I searched all the shops around the children's playground. I asked the mums and dads at the playground. No one had seen her. And just as you get to that moment when the panic starts to rise, I hear my name called over the loudspeaker. And so I make my way to where they told me to go to find my child. And there she was, standing with the lady with the pram. She'd followed my instruction. And when I, when I got her out of there and I thanked the lady with the pram and calmed down a bit and got her in the car on the way home, I said to her, did you feel scared? Did you panic when you couldn't find me? She said, no, I just looked in the shops and then I did what you told me to do. I found a lady with a pram who had kids around and I said to her, I'm lost. And she looked after me. That was always my advice is, a lady with a pram will never fail to help a lost child. Go and find one and they will get you to safety. There is no need to panic when you know that your children have been equipped, even when they're only three, to deal with a situation like that. And likewise, we have no need to panic because our Heavenly Father has equipped us with everything that we need to stand firm in the face of anything that Satan might choose to throw at us. We just have to use it and execute the plan. Take up the armour, use it, and the battle is won. 1 Corinthians 10.13 contains a wonderful promise. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure under it. Does this site look familiar to anybody? very nearby to here. Well, it used to be. It's not anymore. That's just before they removed the roundabout at Fitzsimmons Lane. That's a Fitzsimmons Lane roundabout ready to be destroyed. Now, this is a place of terror for parents who have learner drivers to instruct. You don't bring 
you'll learn a driver to the Fitzsimmons Lane roundabout on their first time in the car. Every parent knows that it's going to end in disaster. And even when my kids, the older two, were quite experienced learner drivers, I still had plenty of occasions to grip the seat going round that roundabout with them. You don't start there. You go to parks, you go to quiet back streets. You don't throw your kids in the deep end around the Fitzsimmons Lane roundabout. They can't handle it. And neither will God allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. He sent his angels to minister to Jesus in the desert and he will provide a way for us to stand in the face of trials and temptations also. And we do that knowing that our victory is assured. Satan is a defeated foe and he knows that his time on this earth is limited. And so he will seek to throw everything that he has to throw followers of Christ off track and to keep the unbelievers away. He wants us to lower our armour and he's got plenty, plenty more fruits to dangle in front of us and so we must continue to pray. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Jesus, these words that you have taught us are full of great wisdom. And as we pray them this morning, we remember that you are sovereign over all things. Satan is not your equal. He's only a fallen and created being. And even his schemes must be played out within the bounds that you determine. Thank you for providing all that we need to stand firm and prevail against his schemes. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in us and for each item of that armour that you have provided. Help us to turn over to you those areas of our lives that are not yet fully surrendered to your Holy Spirit so that our armour might stay firmly in place and so that the devil will have no opportunity with us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.